Well, good morning, IBC family. If you were with us last week, um, you will recall that we started a small little mini-series uh, called How to Study the Bible. And last week, we explicitly talked about or really, really answered a question called Why the Bible Matters. And the reason why we started with a question or seeking to answer a question why the Bible matters is because I bet you could care less how to study it unless you understand why it's important. And so my prayer, at least at that time, was that, um, and it continues to be my prayer even to this day, that you would still understand and become persuaded or convinced that the Bible matters for a number of reasons. In fact, last week we just surveyed 13 reasons, and that was not all of them. We just decided to take 13, and that took us to a little bit past our normal deadline. And so um, if you did not get a chance to, to listen to that sermon, you can go online and, and do that um, just to kind of know where we've come so far. This morning, we are going to actually st- to answer the question, how do we actually study the Bible? So we talked about why it matters, which is extremely important. It's foundational. Now we build upon that foundation and we actually go through the mechanics or the process of how we actually do that. You might notice in your sermon notes, actually, that I did not give you any blanks to fill and on the back it's actually very texty and wordy. Um, I did that for a reason because um, I feel like this could be something that you need to reflect on a little bit later. I ask a lot of questions for the sake of you asking those same kinds of questions in your Bible study. So just to give you explanation as to why there's so much text there and not just the main points, that's kind of my intent behind that. But today we're going to talk about the process. We're going to go through the mechanics. We're actually going to go through the kind of step-by-step of how we actually do this. Because here's the thing. We can oftentimes be under the assumption that we know how to do it when we don't. We become a Christian We've been maybe grown up in the church, but no one has actually sat down with us and said, Aaron, this is how you actually study God's word. This is what you actually do when you open the Bible to the point in which you make application. This is the process by which you make careful observation and accurate interpretation. And so this morning, we're going to do that. It's interesting, a couple weeks ago, uh, when Abby was gone for a couple days, um, I got to kind of assume the role of what she's been doing with Joshua uh, in homeschool. And Joshua is learning alphabet letters, learning how to write them. And, uh, you know, needless to say, I did not realize, or it just kind of brought me back to this place of simplicity in this sense. I was like, oh, Joshua doesn't even know how to write, hold a pencil, really. You know, things that we oftentimes take for granted. You grab a pencil, you just kind of pull onto it. Well, Josh doesn't even know, like, pinch it between these fingers. I mean, he's, Abby's been doing a great job teaching him and stuff, but he's still learning. And so when I sat down with him, like, hey, all right, we're going to draw a straight line for the B, letter B. And the line's all kind of crooked, you know? And you're like, oh, okay, that's not very straight. Then I realized, I'm like, oh, Josh was not even resting his hand on the paper. He's trying to, like, write it. And I'm like, oh, I'm assuming that we're, we're, trying to write a, a, we're trying to draw a straight line and we don't even know how to get in the right posture here. We need to get things kind of, we need to go back more to the basics. And so I'm like, you got to rest your hand on the paper and you got to pinch your fingers between the, you know, the pencil between your fingers this way and kind of hold the paper here. And so what I realized is like, oh, we literally have to start at the very beginning even before we actually begin to write a, the letter B, I think in the same way, we need to start at the very beginning. And for some of you in here, it's, this is going to be affirmation of what you already do and what you already know. That's great. 
For some of you, this might be just a slight tweak in what you think you know, and hopefully this kind of adjusts that and helps refine your Bible study. And for some of us in here, I'm thinking that this will be the first time you've ever been introduced with how to study the Bible. So I'm excited to do this with you, but before I jump into those, the process or the mechanics, there's a couple of distinctions I want to make. First of all, there is a difference between Bible reading and Bible study. Bible reading is like the highway that leads to the trailhead. Bible study is the actual hike on the trail. Or to put it in a little more uh, personal terms, Bible reading is how I like to go hiking, point A to point B. The faster you get to point B, the better the hike is, right? The view's the best in point B. If you, if you want to study the Bible like I hike with my family, that is probably more indicative of how things, how things work. Every tree, every bug, every root ball, everything is looked at and evaluated and probably climbed upon. And that is the process of Bible study. There's nothing fast about it. Everything is slow and methodical, but I'll tell you what, you do see everything, more things than you would probably ever imagine seeing on the trail. And so we see Bible reading kind of gives us this this large 30,000 foot perspective. We see the the grand landscape of what God is doing in in his world from the very beginning of Genesis to the very end of Revelation. We see ultimately God's grand redemptive theme that's taking place here. And every story, every account, every book of the Bible all points to this grand redemptive rescue mission. So reading fast, reading large portions of scripture has great value. If you can take the time to sit down and read through a whole book or multiple chapters at a time, not getting caught up in the details necessarily, but really just getting the grand theme, this is of great value for you. It's interesting, uh, Robert Smith Jr., I've, always never, I've never forgot or have always remembered what he said one time when he said this. While he, was, while he was speaking here. He says, one of the greatest things you can do is take that page that says New Testament and rip that out of your Bible. Because there's not a New Testament and Old Testament necessarily. There is a testament. There is one testament. There is one declaration of God. And, and then the Bible is all about his redemptive rescue mission in this world. We also see that Jesus himself identifies with everything in the Old Testament, especially the law of Moses, when he says in Luke 24, he says, all these things point to me. In other words, what Jesus, Jesus didn't go, well, that was the Old Testament, we're in New Testament times. No, he very much validated the Old Testament when he says, all the Old Testament, the prophets, the law, the Psalms, the Proverbs, everything is all about me. It all points to me. That's why I love what some theologians have kind of spit out there. They say the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I put that in your notes so you can actually look at that later. The, New, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So we see that reading large portions of Scripture has great value. In fact, I would encourage you, even though we're going through Bible study this morning, I would encourage you, if you have the opportunity, to just sit down and read. Not for the sake of, I checked it off my list, but I'm just going to read. I'm going to get large portions. I'm going to read the book from one end to the next. On the other hand, however, there's Bible study. And as I said before, Bible study is in a sense where we land the plane. We're not flying around anymore. We're landing the plane We're slowing way down, 
And in the Bible study, what we are seeking to do is to identify the meaning of Scripture, not just the large landscape of God's redemptive plan, but how every detail and how every story and how every account and even just the details leading to that ultimate rescue mission take place. And so in Bible study, we read and, re- and we reread small sections of Scripture, and we identify words and clauses, and, and we identify the context and the audience. We ask questions like who, what, where, how, when, why. All these kind of things we are seeking to kind of do for the sake of not just slowing down, because I know I'm talking fast even now because i got a lot to say, but ultimately for the point of absorbing God's Word. It's not just being confronted with his word, but it's absorbing God's word. It's internalizing God's word. One, I know some people do this, and I was reading about this last week. One guy even encouraged, he says, this guy actually, I get, these all, all, I get all kinds of stuff in my inbox and stuff. One guy says, I just completed the Bible. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. What do you mean you just completed the Bible? The guy literally wrote out every single word of the Bible. He took his Bible and he copied it. Now, why in the world would someone do that? You can buy any copy of any translation right at the moment of your tip of your fingers because it slowed him down. And he says, and so he has like this two shelves of all these black three-ring binders just on there, and, and he purposely, he didn't even type it. He wrote it, handwritten. He says, the value of slowing down long enough to literally write every single word helped me see so much more of Scripture than I ever would have even if I turned it on my phone, even if I were to kind of just have it flash in front of me, even if I were just to read it verbatim. So there is also a great value in slowing down and, and re- truly study, studying the, the nuances and, and the details because they're all there on purpose. Now, there's a couple different ways in which we study the Bible. Now, I'm not going to go through exhaustively through all the ways in which we can study the Bible, but there's two predominant ways in which we approach the Bible, and please don't get lost in this. I'm just going to throw them out there. If you don't remember them, that's okay. The terms are not as important as the process. One term is called deductive Bible study. And a deductive approach to the study, what you're doing is you're asking kind of a a general question, um, and then you find out what the Bible says about this particular question. It's kind of like a topical study. What does God say about love? And you go through from Genesis to Revelation, everything that God says about love. Now, on the other hand, you kind of flip the coin a little bit, and we have also what's called an inductive Bible study. An inductive Bible study kind of takes the opposite approach and starts from specific to general. In other words, it takes a a specific passage of scripture and it pulls out, it exegetes really what God is actually saying in that particular passage. And so you're not looking for, I have an idea in my mind, I want to see what God says. You're saying, I'm just going to open up this passage of scripture and hear for the first time what God says through this passage. There's three main ways in which we do that, three steps in which we pursue an inductive study of God's word. The first is observation, the second is interpretation, and the third is application. And let me just say this right up front. The order is critical. The order of studying God's word in this way is absolutely important because if you skip a step, then the process of making accurate interpretation or even effective application is going to be compromised. 
So when we make observations, what we are doing here is we are asking this question, what does it say? What do I see? And all you're doing is you're seeing the passage of Scripture and then you're unpacking everything that kind of jumps out to you. In the process of interpretation, we're asking this question, what does it mean? Not just what does it say, but now we're asking, what does it mean? And then thirdly, in application, we're asking, what does it mean to me? So let's unpack these just for a moment. But before we do that, I think the first question we have to ask is, where do I begin? Because I believe oftentimes the reason why we are not in the practice of regular Bible study is because we literally don't know where to start. We're kind of like taking our Bible and it's like, what, what do I do? Like, what's the best place to start? And then we're like, oh, I'm going to do the Bible in a year. And then we get to Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy and we're like, huh. I think I'm just going to let the pastor explain all that. The fact is, there, there are many places in which we can start, and, and the, I think it's important that when we think about selecting Scripture, or, or we ask the question, what do I study? First of all, it's important to become familiar with the Bible, and as I talked about last week, this visual theology guide to the Bible is a great way to understand, first of all, the Bible that you have in your hand. How do, how do I need to understand it? How is it a Bible structured and whenever I even choose to look at a book, the first thing I do to look at a book is I look at the table of contents. I find out, first of all, here's the title. If the, if the title's intriguing, I find out who wrote it. And then I go, what do they even write about? And so I'm really, what I'm doing, I'm getting kind of a general layout of any book I read, especially that of Scripture, so that I know what I'm actually getting ready to encounter. It's important that you select a book or a passage in your process of Bible study. And if you're wondering, what do I read, then I would just, ask, I would just encourage you in this way. Ask. Don't just kind of wallow within yourself going, what do I do? Ask somebody. Pray about it. I bet God would actually go, hey, you know, this is probably where you should start. And if you're looking for recommendations, you can ask me, you can ask any one of the pastors, ask anybody in your life, what are you studying right now? Maybe that's where I'll begin And then, of course, one thing leads to another. Let me just say this in regards to selection of passage. Select a version of the Bible that you can understand. Select a version of the Bible that you can actually read and understand. This is so important because sometimes we grew up with these traditions that, like, there's certain translations that are better than others. And that's true. I believe that's still very true. But there are, just because there are many versions and maybe there's a hierarchical of, tr- of versions and translations, I believe that are, it's true that some are better than others, but the best version of the Bible you read, or the best version of the Bible is the one that you read. Not the one that you hold sacredly on your bookshelf. The best version of the Bible is the one you actually open and can part, you know, intake, that you can absorb, that you can internalize. So then we get to, after we've just identified what we are going to study, then we begin the process of inductive study. And the first step to your study, after you've already chosen a passage, is to make observations. What I, what I said before, I said, you're asking this question, what do I see? What does this passage of Scripture say? I do want to caution you right up front Sometimes, especially as pastors or people that are in the habit of regular teaching, uh, because there's a time crunch sometimes, it's, there's a tendency or a temptation to go immediately go to what others have already said. 
And so you have some great resources like Bible introductions, which I would encourage you. They're great resources. They help you understand what you're about to read. They help you understand context, date, audience. All those things are valid uh, details as you get ready to study a passage. But it's important that you kind of put some resources aside first and you're here to make careful observation on your own. So you, read the, you open the Bible, you select a passage of Scripture, and you begin just to, to mull over it. You read it, and you reread it. You ask questions like, who, uh, who is this being spoken to? Who is actually the one writing this letter? Uh, what, what important themes are being talked about? What genre of Scripture in this pas- is in this passage of Scripture? What is the context of this passage? For example, when you look at the book of 1 Peter, if you, the, the, the beginning of the, I used to do this all the time. I'd read the first few verses, all the introductions, I'm like, boring, and then you move on, right? But they're actually really important because right up front, the Apostle Paul or, or the, Peter the disciple will tell you, this is the reason why I'm writing this letter. And understanding the purpose of writing a letter has great value as you begin to study that scripture. For example, in First Peter, you would know right up front that if you read the introduction, you would see that Peter is writing to exiled Christians, meaning they are Christian refugees. They are Christians who are no longer at their home. They are exiled. They are lonely. And in some ways, they even feel lost. And so Peter is seeking to encourage those Christians. He's seeking to encourage them in the context of persecution, When you understand those things, you read the text differently. Oh, he's talking to persecuted Christians. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense as to why he says what he says. Some things to keep in mind when we make observations are not only asking lots of questions, but pay attention to repeated words. When you see a word that is repeated over and again, there's a reason why that word is repeated. It's good to kind of either circle it, underline it, or take mental note of it, whatever you want to do. It's important also to keep in mind to to not study passages in isolation, but to study them in relationship to where this passage is situated. Here's what I mean. For example, you could take the the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18, and when I was down in Bend, I spoke on this passage, and I could take that parable in and of itself and go, yeah, it's a great message, it has a great point to it, but there's still something missing when you don't understand why that parable was spoken in the first place. And if you were to look at Luke chapter 18 in isolation, you would miss what happened in chapter 17 of Luke. And what you would see is that the Pharisees came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, when is the kingdom of heaven at hand? When can we anticipate that God is going to return, that God is going to, in a sense, the culmination of all things is going to take place? And that is the context in which Jesus gives this parable. Another thing to keep in mind is to, to not gloss over details. Once again, as I kind of already alluded to, they're not accidental. Every word, every order of word, every phrase, every clause, every verse, all is there on purpose. They may seem insignificant in the moment, but a careful observer will pick out, will kind of pick up on certain facts and, 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 and uh, and really uh, pay attention to those things that are drawn. For example, if you look at John chapter 9, verse 1, this is Jesus and his disciples walking up into the temple, as they did customarily every single week. 
And there's a blind guy sitting right there. And if, when you read that passage, the, the words used is, are very short. You would read it going, oh yeah, there's a blind guy. Jesus noticed him. He continues on. Maybe he had a conversation. He moves on. But if you, if you pause long enough to find out what's going on and ask, what does it mean that Jesus saw him? Because we kind of use that and go, I saw him. I noticed. I had a, a casual glance. I picked up on something real quickly. No, that's not the kind of word that Jesus is using here. Now, it's translated in our common-day English today that way. That's why there's a value in comparing translations with one another. But when you look at the word saw, and if you even, most, most of your Bible apps will even give you, uh, you know, a longer um, definitions to what these words actually mean, you'll see that Jesus looked at this blind man with intent, not that he could look back or anything, but he looked and he saw this blind man, and what was interesting is, in his process of looking, we see that Jesus had compassion. In fact, one of the things that you'll see repeated over and again, one observation you can make in scripture is that when Jesus was about to bless somebody or heal somebody, he never did so without first looking with a look of understanding and intent. It wasn't just like I noticed some people that were helpless, but he noticed and he looked. It's almost like he looked into their heart. He understood their emotions. He understood the, the struggle they were experiencing. And as a result, he acted on in compassion. So that phrase, and Jesus saw him, is significant. It wasn't a casual glance, but it was a glance that led to action. That's what compassion is. Empathy followed with action. Another thing we do in our observations is to observe the historical setting. We ask questions like, what time of history was being written? And, and what is, who is this book being written to? And what would what have been the attitude or the thinking and the, the mindsets of people in this time? For example, when you look through the, the, the story of Jonah, Jonah's a great example because um, not only does you, uh, Adam, do, will you relate well to this, uh, Jonah had the worst um, presentation ever to the people of Nineveh. He went in there and said, you're all going to die if you don't repent, and they repented. And he's like, what? Are you kidding me? But if you understand the historical context, if you understand the historical uh, things that have taken place, for example, you would realize the reason why Jonah was so apprehensive to go to Nineveh wasn't because he was bashful. It wasn't because he didn't understand God's rescue mission. He hated the Assyrians. Why would he hate the Assyrians so much? Because the Assyrians were ruthless people. They were oppressors of the people of Israel. And then God has the audacity to say, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and I want you to speak a message of salvation, and I want to save them. And Jonah's saying, I don't want you to save them. I want them to die. I hate those people. I'm not just indifferent. I want them to die. When you understand the historical context, you understand why Jonah is so determined to literally go the other way. So as you make observations and as you do your best, and again, this is practice makes better, brothers and sisters. This is something that you get in the practice of doing. And I'll talk about in the very end how we can also get in the practice of helping one another come to careful observation. But then we come to our second step. And the second step of inductive study is called interpretation. We're asking the question, what does this passage mean? 
Now we must understand that this, that interpretation flows from observation. Interpretation flows from observation. In other words, accurate interpretation depends on careful observation. Because if you rush into interpretation, like I read a text real quick, I think this is what it means, then we are in danger of forming what's called presuppositional conclusions. And I know that's a mouthful, and I don't mean to lose you. Let me just explain what I'm just talking about for a second. Presuppositions are those conclusions or interpretations that we make that basically say this, here's what I think it says, here's what I feel it says, here's what others have said it says, or here's my theological tradition, and therefore this is what I think this passage means. And although some of our traditions can very well be true, and although you may actually have a, a good awareness of scripture so you can quickly make an interpretation, presuppositions can also get us into trouble because they can lead us down a, an inaccurate conclusion. In other words, we're not looking for how you, how you feel about a text. We're not looking for what you want it to mean. We're not looking for what you think it should mean. We're actually asking, Lord, what are you actually saying to me regardless of societal conclusions cultural implications or anything of the matter. We're looking for what God are you saying in this text. There's another caution we have to be careful of is not only do we need to make careful observation before we make accurate interpretation, but we must also understand that we're not yet asking what does this passage mean to me? You see, so often it's easy for us to go, well, what does this mean to my life? Well, first of all, you don't know what it means for your life until you know what it means. You have to understand, first and foremost, this is what the passage is saying before I can make careful application or effective application of what does it mean to me. So again, not only do we have to first start with observation, but we cannot too quickly jump to application. Interpretation is, first of all, jumping off the foundation of observation and therefore asking, what is it saying? God, what are you saying? For example, when we oftentimes so quickly go to what does it mean to me, we do this very easily because we sometimes wake up with a very subjective approach to life. I wake up going, how is my life going to make, how is my day going to be joyful? And and how are all you going to make my life happy? And so then we open the Bible going, ooh, I love Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for you to prosper, a hope and a future. We love that. But then again, if you look at the context, the context is Jesus is kind of instilling hope in the midst of persecution and exile. And Jesus isn't saying, hey, you know what? Everything you could think that you would want, I'm just going to grant you. It's just another version of Aladdin, right? No, no. Jesus is saying, I have a hope and I have a future, but it's not the one that you wanted. In fact, what I'm going to have you do is I'm going to have you have these pagan nations come and they're going to be a part of my redemptive plan and I'm going to use them to, in a sense, discipline you but draw you back to myself so I do have plans for you, declares the Lord. There is a hope and a future for you, declares the Lord, but it's not the one that you think for yourself. You see, when we too quickly go to what does this mean to me without understanding what the passage says, we can make very inaccurate interpretations. Or for example, we could look at Matthew chapter seven and that says, judge not 
lest you be judged. I think Pastor Mike preached on this. Therefore, and, and there's a common mantra in our culture today, even non-Christians will say, aren't Christians supposed to not judge? And on one hand, that's true, if understood rightly. Yes, we are not supposed to judge one another or condemn one another, especially if we do so in an attitude of condemnation. But if you look at verses five and six of that same passage, it says, do not judge. It says, but when you judge, do so in this way. In fact, if you look throughout scripture, you can look at Matthew 18. We should go to our brother and sister who is in sin and point out their fault in love. Luke 17, three, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Wait, I thought we weren't supposed to judge. Well, you're not supposed to judge wrongly. You're supposed to judge rightly. You're supposed to judge with an attitude and a heart of love for the person that you care for their well-being before God. That's the motivation and calling someone else or calling someone to the floor. So, so far we've kind of, we've said we've kind of gone through observation, we go through some kind of warnings in our interpretation, but let's just kind of break this down for a moment. It's important to understand the language being used in our interpretation. Once again, this is kind of a carryover from observation, but realize that words have meaning, but also words change meaning over time. And so just because you read in your English translation a certain word, that does not necessarily mean, even though the translators try to get the most accurate term out there, it does not necessarily mean that the word you think it means is actually what it means. Did you follow me there? Let me just say it again and very succinctly. When you read words in your English translation, just because you think a word means something does not mean that's what it actually means. And so we have to ask the question, what does this word mean? I think it means this, but then I have to look it up and go on, oh, maybe I don't actually know what this word means in the first place. Or at least in my, in the way in which I use the word does not necessarily mean the way in which scripture is intending to use that word. Our goal is always to understand what is the author saying, not what I think he's saying, but what is he actually saying So we ask questions like this. What is the meaning of each word used? How are the significance words used elsewhere? This is very significant, by the way, and this is where you can cross-reference very easily. Even most of your Bibles, if you look in the back, you'll see this word is also used here and this word is also used there. That's very helpful to help give you a better understanding or a more fuller understanding of what is actually being communicated in this text. We can ask questions like, what genre of of, of scripture is this being written in? Is it poetry? Is it a letter? Is it narrative? Is it apocalyptic, meaning end times? All these kind of questions matter as you seek to make careful interpretation. Once again, we also have to make sure we look at historical context of the passage being written. Like I said, for example, in the time of Jonah. We need to look at the sociological situations in which this passage was being written. For example, you look at John chapter 4, and you don't, at first read, you go, I don't really pick up on the details, or maybe you're just left with confusion, but in John 4, we see that Jesus goes to the woman sitting at a well, and the, the disciples go into town, they get some provisions, they come back, and they're like, what is Jesus talking to this woman for? Maybe they're just confused, maybe we just make some kind of offhanded conclusion, but if you understand what's going on historically, you realize that Jesus is kind of Um, he's shattering paradigms. He's shattering the social norms of the day because the disciples are very well understood. They, They know that you just don't do that. 
And yet Jesus is sitting by the well by himself with this woman having this intense conversation. Of course, we know the rest of the story. He tells her everything about her life. She goes in, becomes a huge witness for Christ. They come out. God is glorified. But again, if you don't know the historical context, and by the way, your study Bibles are a great resource for that. They give a lot of clarity as you're reading these verses going, if you're having a question, if you have a study Bible, oftentimes the study notes will give some uh, greater or further clarity to what is being talked about in that text. Geographical situations in this context are also important factors. Um, All these kind of details shed light on stuff so that we can come to the point of making uh, theological implications. Remember, theological observations and interpretations are still different than making application. You still need to conclude what is being said before you get to the point of what is being said to me. So we need to ask questions like this. What is being revealed about God in this text? What is being revealed about human nature or me in this text? You know what's interesting is, you know what's the difference between human nature thousands of years ago and human nature today? Nothing. That's why the Bible is so relevant. Human nature hasn't changed. From the beginning of time, we're still image bearers of God and since Adam and Eve, we're still under, the, in a sense, the curse of sin. And though we are redeemed in Christ and we have the Spirit of God within us, we still have the same human nature. So the Bible is just as, a, as applicable today as it was thousands of years ago in a specific context. We need to ask questions like, what does it say about sin? What does this text say about redemption and salvation? What does it say about the church and the Christian life? Again, these are all things, we're getting to the point of like, what is this passage actually saying about whatever it's talking about? And then we also need to follow up and say, and what does it say ultimately about God's redemptive rescue mission? I got to get a new Bible at our home because our children's Bible is getting pretty worn. But um, the children's, the, the story, the children's Bible I've talked about before, every single story ends with how this points to Jesus. Every single story points to how it ends or how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan. Brothers and sisters, this is a habit that you and I get to encourage one another with and get in the habit of interpreting. Interpretation, right interpretation, accurate interpretation must always ask this question and and able to make this connection. How does this point to Jesus? Not only the ministry of Christ, but ultimately the person of Christ. Every single word, every single story, every single account from Genesis to Revelation all points to or points back to Jesus. And then we're ready to get to application. We've made careful observations. We've made, from that we've made accurate interpretations. And now we can begin the process of making careful or excuse me, effective application. We're asking this question, what does this passage mean to me? Knowing what I know now, what does this mean to me? How does the meaning of this passage apply to my life? Specifically, we ask kind of broad, horizontal questions. What does this passage mean to uh, uh, kind of on a social level? What are the social implications of this passage? How is God's redemption being revealed in this passage? We ask personal implications For example, we ask questions like, 
what does this mean for my life? What areas of my life am I aware of that this passage speaks explicitly to? You see, this is the, this is the whole point of Scripture. The whole point of Scripture, though you can't rush ahead, the whole point of studying Scripture is so that we can ultimately define, find out not only what is being revealed in my own heart by the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and, in a sense, fillets our heart open, but then we also see what this is what God is doing to minister to our lives, how he's growing us, how he's refining us, how, as Paul would say, he's transforming us by the renewing of our minds. This is why Bible study is also just as effective and necessary as Bible reading. Because the point of Bible study is this, and I love what Howard Hendricks says, he says, it's not so much how much you get into Scripture, it's how much Scripture gets into you. It's not about checking off your reading list for that day. The question is, how much are you absorbing what God is saying? Sometimes the most effective approach to Bible study is not going, hey, I just went through the entire Bible. That would be good. I'm not saying that's bad. But if you were to mull over an entire year over one book, that would also be equally as beneficial. I appreciate what Howard Hendricks goes on to say. He says, the mark of true spiritual maturity is not how much you understand, but how much you use. In the spiritual realm, the opposite of ignorance is not knowledge, but obedience. This is the point of our Bible study, that we get to, in the right form, in the right steps, get to the application that says, Lord, what are you saying to me? What does this mean for my life? How does this affect uh, the way in which, how does this affect my family, my marriage, my parenting, my role at work, and how I relate to friends, and how I relate to my church members, how I relate to strangers? All these questions matter, because you're getting to this point, like, Lord, how is this text transforming my life so that it might look more like you and reflect your glory that much more clearly? And I think the questions that we have to really come, you know, we have to kind of conclude on is this. And I really appreciate the life coaching that Jody's been doing and stuff because it's not just about being aware of what you need to do. It's getting to that final step. So what are you going to do this week? What are you going to do today? What are you going to do right now? Because brothers and sisters, as was given to me a number of years ago by an elder that is no longer with us. He said, Aaron, the greatest indication of what you do tomorrow is what you do today. Who you want to be tomorrow is all wrapped up in the decisions you make today. And so when we come to this point of application, what we are really asking is like, not only, Lord, what are you saying to me, but what am I going to today knowing what I know now? What am I going to do today? What difference is this going to make in my life today knowing that this is what God has said through his divine and inspired word? So I wrap it up in this way. I believe Bible study is both personal and collective. Bible study is both personal and at the same time collective. What I mean by that is this. Yes, I think it's important that you and I have a personal time with God, that you're sitting in the word, that you're in a sense in a quiet meditation, sitting in the presence of God, just reading and in a sense listening to God through the reading, maybe even in the hearing, and saying, God, what do do I see in this text? What does it mean 
And therefore, in turn, what does it mean to me? But here's another step that I think is very valuable for us as a church, and that is our collective understanding. And what I mean by this is, I've learned this through seminary, I've learned this even through my doctoral program. It's amazing, as, as, as much work as I pour into a text, I'll sit at the table with somebody else and they'll be like, yeah, and this text says this. And I'm like, wow, man, I never, I never saw that angle. Or I never, I never picked up on that detail. Or I never even realized how, like, the, the, the context in that way. And so what I'm saying is this, we learn better collectively. We learn more fully together. And this, is, this happens in the context, not just in sermons. It also happens in the context of Sunday school classes and life groups. But I also believe it happens in the context of just our casual conversation. And so I'm going to challenge us as a church to embark on a Bible study journey. This will be very beneficial for those of you who are still in this part. I still am in the selection phase. I don't even know what to, where to start. And in your um, bulletin, you'll notice that there is a two-week Bible reading plan on the life and teachings of Jesus. And here's what we're going to do as a church. Here's what I'm going to invite you to as a church. Even if you already have a good thing going, just keep going with that. That's fine. Or maybe if you can, Add this to you, what you are already doing. But here's what I get excited about. Here's the vision I feel like the Lord has placed on my heart. As we are interacting with each other, as we are going about our days, as we're connecting in whatever context, whether it be after services or throughout the week, my desire is that we would go a little deeper in our conversation. That we would not be content with the casual, how was your weekend? What have you been up to? What was the, the latest adventure? I'm not saying those are bad conversations, but I am saying this, this is not how we stimulate to one another to love and good deeds. So if we're going to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, the question I want to ask and the one, what I want to hear from you and what I want to share with you is, what has God been teaching you? What has God been telling you lately? In fact, when we all know that we've been reading the same passage of scripture, then we can actually, have a, we have a, the same point of reference. We're able to go, hey, you know what? I've been reading this week, and, and I, I'm assuming you've been reading this week too. What did you think about that one passage? Especially that part that said this. What do you think about that? Is, that? is that weird, or is that difficult to understand? Or like, that just blew my mind. Again, the, the point of this is not only to get you in the habit of reading and studying and sitting still before God, we can refer to last week's sermon for why that matters. But I believe that we will learn much more effectively, much more fully, when we learn collectively. And so I want to encourage us as a church, every two weeks, there's a bunch of, there's a, a reading plan that we're going to give to you. I'm going to make reference to it regularly. I myself am going to go through this. And so I get excited about reading what you're reading I get excited about you reading what I'm reading. I get excited about when, when we have conversations with each other that we get, uh, we get to go deep together. We get to understand what God is saying more fully so that we might more better reflect his glory to the nations. So what do you think? I, mean, I think it's a good idea. I'm gonna pray for us. And I know we gotta get wrapped up here. 
but we're going to sing one song that I will be familiar. You don't even need lyrics, um, but it'll be a song that uh, basically communicates everything we've been talking about these past two weeks. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just want to say we love you. Even now, Father, just as we stop and pause just for a moment to say, Lord, you've been so good. And I know many of us in here, Father, are dealing with something or struggling in some way or fighting the good fight of faith or just really struggling to hold on, whatever it may be. Father, we know that your word tells us that you are good. And you cannot be anything else but that because you are God. And although we don't understand our circumstances fully, we do know that you love us dearly. And we want to rest in that love. And because of that love, Father, we want to know you more fully. We want to know you deeply. We want to know what you've already revealed to us. If we would just take the time to sit still and know that you are God. So Father, do that work in our hearts even now. I pray that we as a church, as one body, as one family, would really be moving in one direction, that we would be devoted to your word, not because that's what good Christians do as opposed to bad Christians, but because we need it. Our greatest need in life is to hear from you, to hear the voice of God. So Father, may we encourage one another in, these, in, these, in this way, and may we honor you by our devotion to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.